The Politocrat is brought to you by the great people at Anchor. Anchor is such a great place to go if you want to get started in podcasting. And it's easy and it's free. Anchor, marvelous stuff, marvelous. And I'm so grateful to the folks at Anchor for getting me going with The Politocrat. If you want to get going and be heard on Apple, on Spotify and everywhere podcasts can be, Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. It is Saturday, April the 25th, 2020. Another day, another day. You know, I've, I've got a question for you. If you are in the U.S., have you received your stimulus check yet? Thank you, Madam Speaker. I yield 30 seconds to the gentlelady from New York, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez. The gentlewoman from New York is recognized for 30 seconds. Thank you, Madam Speaker. And um, on behalf of my constituents in the Bronx and Queens, New York's 14th Congressional District, the most impacted district in America, calling people, losing their families every day. It is a joke when Republicans say that they have urgency around this bill. The only folks that they have urgency around are, are folks like Ruth Chris Steakhouse and Shake Shack. Those are the people getting assistance in this bill. You are not trying to fix this bill for mom and pops. And we have to fight to fund hospitals, fighting to fund testing. That is what we're fighting for in this bill. It is unconscionable. If you had urgency, you would legislate like rent was due on May 1st and make sure that we include rent and mortgage relief for our constituents. Thank you very much. So that was Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on Thursday on the House floor talking about an issue that I want to get into, which is part of today's episode entitled Mixed Messages. Mixed Messages and Nightmares. So on Thursday, AOC, as she is called for short, was on the floor of the house as you just heard. And as you could hear the disgust and and the outrage from her as to a very substandard bill that has not addressed the issues that affect the most vulnerable people. This $484 billion economic aid package was primarily directed at small businesses. You know, the small businesses that were supposed to get $390 billion of aid plus last time. Turns out they didn't get a dime of that money then. Turns out this time that at least $174 billion of the $484 billion package 
is going to rich corporations once again. Now, we know that the Republicans are well in hand on this, and we know that this is definitely their agenda. It is all about the money for them. It is all about the money for them. We know that. But what on earth is going on with this new package? And why is it that AOC was the only Democratic politician to vote against that bill on Thursday? The New York Times reports the coronavirus stimulus package has $174 billion in tax breaks for the rich. Now, this is actually the tax break that came in for the bill that came in last month. $174 billion in tax breaks to overwhelmingly to rich individuals and large companies. And this isn't including the $390 billion that they scammed and stole from these small businesses. That word small businesses is really problematic because it gives a lot of latitude to these big corporations to claim themselves as small businesses. And apparently in this bill, this $484 billion bill that I'm just talking about, that AOC is talking about, there is nothing at all, as you heard her say, nothing at all that protects for people who are being furloughed from their jobs, from people who are in situations of dire need with their rent. There's nothing like that in this new bill that was passed through the House on Thursday. There is nothing for PPE. There's no protective equipment PPE, personal protective equipment in that bill. There's nothing in this new bill either for the post office, which is in dire straits at the moment. Trump wants to privatize that post office, make no mistake. Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, this week is leveraging a $10 million loan to the post office with all of these conditions which is what leveraging is. You know, you impose all these onerous conditions upon a, an entity getting a loan or whatever else it might be. What it should be is a grant. It shouldn't be a loan. And it should be a lot more than $10 million. The post office turns a profit, but it is not generating enough money in terms of competing with Amazon and DHL and FedEx and UPS. Because what happens is, is that some of these postal services deliver on Sundays and the post office really does not deliver on Sundays. So this is a problem. 
you do have some of these delivery agencies that do deliver on Sundays. And the post office revenue is solely from stamps. And, of course, from any packaging related to stamps, whether it's an envelope, um, whether it's the kind of packaging related, like priority mail packaging, you know, you get to deal, you know, you get to spend money on what the box might be, the container you put it in. That's all tied to the postal revenue. But unlike Amazon and unlike these other places, there's only one use for the postal service. Amazon can make money off of various things. So there's no PPE in this bill. There is nothing for postal workers. There's nothing for the postal service in this bill. There's nothing in this bill for the average person who is in dire need. There's nothing in this at all. You know, for the people in this country who need to pay their rent, but, you know, they have to find out whether the apartment building they are in has ties to the FHA, Federal Housing Association. And if they come under the FHA, then the FHA's program is supposed to say, hey, look, you know what? You have to have a moratorium on rent and you've got to issue that. And the LA Times today in the California section has a pretty darn big article called A Housing Quagmire. And in that article, they talk, and it's Liam Dillon and Andrew Curry, and they talk about the perspective that landlords face. You know, the landlord's perspective, they're not getting the rents because, of course, the people who are tenants don't have their jobs and so are not getting the monies that they can to keep the roof over their heads. The landlords are not getting the overhead from the tenants. And there's a big, and it's a really good article by the two of the writers I just mentioned. And it it goes on and on. You hear perspectives from people down in Los Angeles. And they're all talking about how difficult this is. There's student loan debt. Some people over $100,000 in student loan debt. Someone who's an Uber driver struggling, dealing with a situation. Her dad's cab company shut down. I mean, this is some really rough stuff. And people are in pain. Where was the money for the tenants who couldn't pay their rent? Where was the money for them? Where was the economic relief for them? You know, there's still lots of people who can't file unemployment because they can't get through and some of the state services are overstretched. Where was the money to the states so that they could have more? There is very little money in here for the states, if at all, in this new bill that was passed. And so we are very knowledgeable in the fact that the Republicans aren't going to do much about this. But this was in the House. The Senate had already passed their side of the bill. And the bill that was sent over to the House ended up being changed a little bit. 
Now, the Senate is Republican-controlled and has the majority in the Republican Party. The House has the majority in the Democratic Party. It's democratically controlled. And while the bill was changed in the House from the Senate version, it doesn't go nearly far enough. And I don't understand why it is that the Democratic Party, which has the power in the House and has the third most powerful politician in the country, in Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, why it is that the Democrats have caved, in my view, and not provided the relief for millions of people in this country, ordinary, everyday people in this country who fall outside the 1%, i.e. the 99% of us, who do not have billions of dollars or millions of dollars to spare and throw away and burn. So you have what AOC was talking about in the clip you heard, a situation where Ruth Chris Steakhouse and Shake Shack are getting billions of dollars, millions upon millions of dollars that they do not need. While the rest of us who are not billion dollar corporations still have not got our stimulus check of $1,200 yet. with money and let me tell you something about money it is scarce right now for so many millions of people in this country you know, the average worker in the United States of America is working paycheck to paycheck is really living paycheck to paycheck and that was before this coronavirus pandemic ever came along. Amazon was paying zero in federal income tax and getting a tax return refund of $129 million. Those are from 2019 figures for Amazon. That's public record. Jeff Bezos was cashing in in February of this year during this pandemic to the tune of about $4 billion. He sold stock in certain companies and he made out with a near $4 billion cash flow. 
he walked away with four billion, almost $4 billion. A lot of these folks, in my view, were fully aware of this pandemic before most of the country really understood what was going on here in the U.S. And I would dare say a lot of rich people all over the planet knew, including people who aren't so rich but are in the corridors of power here in the U.S., not just Trump, certainly senators in the United States Senate, House members in the House of Representatives and various governors and mayors all over the country. And we're hearing about this all the time now. We're hearing about this all the time. And what it seems to me is that we have, and I think it's very obvious to anybody, we have been taking care of the 1% in this country and on this planet. And in this coronavirus series of bills here for this aid package, the richest 1% of people in this country here called the US of A were getting taken care of. I mean, it's obvious that they were. And the small businesses, the real mom and pop stores, really what they, the, this is the way that it should be described. The mom and pop businesses, not small business, because that's such a nebulous term. That's such a term that you can put all these little umbrellas into to, to try to manipulate. Mom and pop store, you cannot manipulate. Shake Shack is not a mom and pop store. Ruth Chris Steakhouse is not a mom and pop store. And let's start to get these definitions and terms correct. And this is not semantics. This is real. You had so many people, so many mom and pop business operators left holding the bag with the previous bill that was passed last month. The $2 trillion bill. There's really $6 trillion because... Rich companies, thanks to the Secretary of the Treasury there, Mr. Uh, King of Foreclosure California, Steve Mnuchin, had tremendous oversight and had sole discretion to look at where this extra money was going. And he was giving it to rich corporations. And he was giving it to the richest of the rich. This is on top of two tax cuts that Donald Trump has given the rich. And this is on top of, again, in the New York Times yesterday, the revelation that $174 million. I need to. $174 million was going to more tax cuts. Uh, oh, oh, let me, oh, let me correct this. 174 billion with a B. So out of that bill, 174 billion in tax breaks for the rich. I really have a question for these folks in the Democratic Party because they are as much to blame as the Republicans are in the House of Representatives, at least. Why didn't more of you Vote no on this bill. There are people who are drowning in debt. There are people in this country who are absolutely at their wits end. They don't know where their next meal is coming from. They have a family to feed. 
They have rent to pay. They have bills to pay. And why is it that the more senior members of the House of Representatives on the Democratic side are pontificating about what a great deal this was when in actuality what Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was saying on the Senate on the House floor in that audio I played is the truth itself. The average person is not even thought about in this bill. And if the House did so much tweaking, and I understand you've got to, in these kinds of things, there's going to be compromises, there's going to be things that need to be compromised. But did the Republicans do any compromising? Not by the looks of this bill. The Republicans got pretty much everything they wanted. And yet the Democrats, with the power that they have in the House of Representatives as the majority party, as the party with the third most powerful person in the country, she's third in line, second in line, because next in line after Trump would be Pence. So he's first in line. Second in line is Nancy Pelosi. She's the third politician, but number three politician in the country. But she's second in line after Pence. So Pence is next in line to Trump should anything happen to him. And should anything happen to Mike Pence, then it's the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, as the president of the country. So she has immense power. And she is right down, I mean, she, I, mean I can go see her house practically from here, where I am, here in San Francisco, I'm not kidding. I don't understand and Nancy Pelosi is running for office again this fall. I am puzzled by this signing ceremony. She signed this bill on Thursday on the House side. It went over to Trump yesterday. He signed it. But what I don't understand is what is happening to the average person in this country in this bill? You're, you're parading this bill around like it's a victory. Why couldn't you deal with both the mom and pop business and the people on the healthcare workers area who in hospitals who desperately need equipment? Isn't this where the money also should be going? Isn't this the frontline help? Why do we have to do this piecemeal is my point. Why can't we have a mechanism where we can deal with these three things at once? The small business mom and pop stores, the, the healthcare side, the healthcare workers side of getting more PPE for them and masks and all, all of those things. And also deal with the 99% of the country that still hasn't got their stimulus check yet. I think that we can walk and chew gum at the same time. The Republicans know what kind of gum they're chewing because they get what they want. But the Democratic Party, at least in the House of Representatives, and perhaps beyond, still don't seem to know how to get what they want.
Stones, you can't always get what you want. Well, the Democrats have disappointed here in the last two go-rounds for these bills. I understand that the economic need was there. Speaking of getting what you need, there was a need to get something done. And I think what you're finding and what has been the conversation amongst a lot of Democrats, particularly in the House and in the Senate, is the urgency to get something, anything done. And I think the urgency of that was what the Democratic side in the equation was really looking at. And I think that what the operative was, was to get something done now and we'll fight these other battles later. And I forgot to mention, by the way, in that previous section, the post office. At the end there, I talked about the post office, but I didn't mention that in that last portion, that the post office should also have been included in this bill. You can do these things each at a time. And what would another week have been, another few days have been? Steny Hoyer was on the floor on Thursday, the majority leader of the House on the Democratic side. And he said, look, you know. You guys held out for another week or two just for an extra $16 billion. But the point is, the Republicans got that money. They got that money. They held out for another week or two for $16 billion extra dollars. But that's my point. The Republican Party, we know, is a party that is interested only in money and profit and not in human beings. Human beings, what are they? You know, that the Republican Party is, we know, a wholly owned subsidiary of corporations and criminals for that matter. And criminal corporations. They stick to their task, though. As abhorrent as it is and as immoral as it is, they stick to that task. They will stay. They will hold out for another week or two for 16 billion dollars. But what would the Democratic Party hold out for in that bill? They didn't hold out for the Postal Service. They didn't prolong these negotiations and say, hey, we're not going anywhere with this until you put money in here for the Postal Service. They didn't hold out for the average person. We're not going anywhere until we have money in here to give to the states And that we have money in here so that renters can absolutely pay their rent and be given $2,500 a month. Which is what some of the more progressive members of the Democratic House were proposing. It's what Bernie Sanders in the Senate was proposing. 
I think Jeff Merkley was on board with that too in Oregon, the Senate out of Oregon, on the Democratic side. I think Elizabeth Warren is also on board with $2,500 or $2,000 a month. So why won't the Democrats hold out for that? If you have members of the Democratic side, including AOC, by the way, including Elon Omar, saying, look, this bill should have had things in it. By the way, Elon Omar voted for this bill, by the way. And again, it's predicated off the idea that Democrats said, well, we've got to have some relief now and some is better than none. But when you've got 99% of people in this country who are still struggling, you've got most people in this country, the overwhelming majority of which do not have their stimulus checks, then why didn't the Democrats hold out for something? And quite frankly, that includes all of the people who didn't vote for this bill. Excuse me, that includes all of the people who did vote for it. Because again, AOC was the only Democrat who did not vote yes on this bill. Because she stood up for principle. And I'm hearing, and it's been in the news over the last few days, in the aftermath of this bill, there is a block of progressives And this was also referenced on the program on Friday, Democracy Now. There was discussion going on and there is going to be apparently a real progressive pushback in the Democratic Party on this. Is that if this happens again in the next bill, the the progressive wing of the Democratic Party has said that they will not vote for it. That they will push Speaker Pelosi and tell her, look. You've got to have provisions in here for the average person, the working class person, the lower middle class person, the poor person, the middle class period, but mostly the working poor and the working class. You've got to. And that's the the average person in this country is a working class person. There are some middle class people, but most people in this country are working class. And then some of those individuals, then there's some people who are working poor. Many people are working poor because they are living paycheck to paycheck. So the progressive wing of the party is saying, apparently to Nancy Pelosi, or will say to her around in the next stimulus check package or the next stimulus aid package, which is probably going to come next month sometime, is going to be, look, we're not going to vote for what you're putting forward in the House if you do not guarantee in this bill that people who are struggling, people who are struggling to pay rent, people who've got student loans, people who are defaulting on credit card loans, people who are doing all kinds of things, if you do not give them economic relief in this bill, we're not voting for this package. If you don't put provisions in there to protect the post office, to make sure that it gets the proper funding that it needs to get and is not subject to the whims of the king of foreclosure and his leveraging of a 10 million, not billion, but million dollar loan to the post office, which needs a lot more money than that to keep its operation going effectively. If you don't put in provisions for the folks on the front lines who are saving lives with this pandemic and who don't have equipment to do it with, who don't have the PPE to do it with, if you're not putting in money in these bills, if there's no provision in any of these bills for any of those things, we are not voting for it. And I think that's the that's the the stance the stance that the 
progressives should hold firm to. In fact, we should be calling all of these House members and telling them, hold firm in the progressive wing and also telling Speaker Pelosi as well, you've got to do this. Public pressure now has to be put on Speaker Pelosi and all of these corporate Democrats who really don't have too much remorse over what's going on. Look, I'm not saying that some of them do not care. Of course they do, to a degree. But do not but do they care enough? The Republicans clearly care. I mean, they're looking to make sure that all of their rich buddies at the top get all this money. $174 million? Really? Excuse me, I keep saying million. I'm shortchanging them by, you know, exponentially here, by the power of 10. I mean... These guys are getting $174 billion, with a B, in tax breaks from that last bill that was passed in March. And the Republican Party was willing to hold out for an extra $16 billion. They got what they wanted. I mean, they defied the Rolling Stones song. They got everything they wanted. And they didn't need any of it. Yet the Democratic Party, it's just maddening to me, quite frankly. And I'm a Democratic voter. And I just do not understand why on earth it is that the Democratic Party could not have held out in the House and played some hardball with the House Republicans. Why, why couldn't the Democrats have done that? And I think that's the point. I mean, I think, quite frankly, even though you heard in that audio from AOC that she was clearly directing her ire and uh, her frustration and anger at the Republicans because the Republicans were just willing to make sure they got everything they wanted. Really, a lot of that ire also, I'm sure privately, she's directing at Speaker Pelosi and others. Speaker Pelosi knew that she was going to vote no on this bill. Nothing gets done in that house without Pelosi knowing about it. Not a single thing. She has committees. She has House Whip. She has the House Whip Jim Clyburn, who is the majority whip in the House for the Democrats. He's the majority whip. He is the one who goes around and whips up all the votes. That's what he does. He gives account to Pelosi. He reports back to her. And Pelosi knows the lay of the land. Pelosi, know who, Pelosi knows who's going to vote yes and who isn't. Speaker Pelosi knew that AOC was not going to vote yes on this bill. So what has to happen now, I think, is that if this does happen again, people have to hold firm. But I don't want it to happen again because I think that what we can do as concerned voters, here in the United States at least, is to call Speaker Pelosi's office, is to call Steny Hoyer's office, is to call our local congressperson, our congressperson here or wherever you might be at 202-225-3121 and tell them, for this next bill, you have to make sure that nurses and other healthcare workers get the personal protective equipment. And that must be provided for. You must also say that the postal service must be provided for funding to keep it afloat. 
especially during this election year. I mean, if you don't get mail this year after September, I mean, this is going to be a catastrophe. And I know that there are postal workers who are sick. 41 of them have died from this COVID-19 disease in the U.S. Postal Service. And Trump's talking about privatizing it. I mean, that's what he's really doing. He wants to. You've got this leveraging of this $10 million loan with these preconditions on it. There needs to be relief for the Postal Service. There needs to be relief for people who are working on the front lines and risking their lives. They need to be protected. I've talked about this in the last day or two with the idea of what a hero is and who a hero is in these conditions where infrastructure isn't there for them and then you're calling them heroes. When something disastrous happens, you're calling them heroes, but the infrastructure that they run into has not protected them. And then you give them this hollow terminology of a hero and they've sacrificed everything even before that moment that they've saved hundreds of people's lives. And what are the Democrats doing about that? The Republicans are always who they are. We know that they are a criminal group who look out for the bottom line and the bottom line only. But what is the Democratic Party's bottom line? We have to put pressure on the Democrats, the corporate Democrats, who are making us wait here to see the relief. It's not them, but it's the idea that they don't go in. And I'm sure there were people in those rooms, the room where it happens, right? Alexander Hamilton and then in the play Hamilton as well, you know, the, the room where it happens, where all the wheeling and dealing gets done. We're not in those rooms where it happens. So our representatives are, and what they're supposed to be doing is fighting like cats and dogs, tooth and nail, to get the things that the people, us, who voted them in, are demanding from them. And AOC, in that clip that I played, is proving that she is the voice of the people right now in this country. Bernie Sanders is as well. But Bernie Sanders is not running for president anymore. But he is still doing what he needs to do. And there are a few others as well. Representative Maxine Waters, and I hope her sister um, perseveres and, and is able to get through this fight. But it's very difficult for her sister, who has the coronavirus. I mean, this situation that speak, uh, that uh, Representative Waters, or a.k.a. Auntie Maxine, is talking about. Her sister's in a really bad way, apparently. So there are a few, and I wish her, I send her the very best, really I do. So there are a few Democrats out there who you know are fighting for you. Maxine Waters is certainly one of them. AOC is one of them. You know, Elon Omar, Rashida Tlaib, who did a really powerful tribute to um, a five-year-old girl named Skylar, who died from COVID-19 just last week. This week, you know, you know that there are people fighting. But what I wonder is, will that translate to the bigwigs near the top of the House in the Democratic Party? We need to put pressure on them at 202-225-3121. I'll be right back. Hallucinate. 
NXS with Mediate. And welcome back to the Politocrat. Now for the nightmare. In Brazil, the Justice Minister, Sergio Moro, resigned live on television yesterday. He announced his resignation in the government of Jair Bolsonaro, who, in my opinion, is one of the most repulsive human beings on the planet. Donald Trump is obviously another of those beings, repulsive. Bolsonaro is a truly hideous figure and his repression and his crackdowns and his authoritarian ways are literally strangling the nation of Brazil. The poor in Brazil are being completely demonized and attacked and killed and there are death squads that Bolsonaro rides around with similar to Duterte out in uh, the Philippines, and is literally championing them killing people. I mean, Jair Bolsonaro is on Instagram and all these other places on social media, um, at least pictured with gang members and, and killers, death squad members, and he's posing with them. So Sergio Moro got on television. He is the Justice and Security Minister. He announced his resignation live on television on Friday after Bolsonaro, he fired the federal police chief. Bolsonaro has been interfering with police investigations. Bolsonaro is a thorn in the side of government. He literally wants to get rid of it. And he's succeeding because he, he already forced out the health minister. He fired him. Or was it the health minister stepped down? I think the health minister, whatever it was, I think it was earlier this week, the health minister was either fired or he resigned. He was fired. And he was fired because it turns out he was fired. He was fired because he said, look, we need to do more. We know we cannot have these open state measures. We cannot. We've got to close things down here in Brazil. Bolsonaro didn't take kindly to that. Because all the health minister wanted to do is keep the population safe or as safe as possible. And it was not going to be achieved by not instituting a stay-at-home order, which Brazil is not under. They're not under stay-at-home orders. So that's that news from Brazil. So now you've got no justice minister there. You've got a police chief, federal police chief, who has been fired. You've got a health minister who has been fired. So now you basically have a dictatorship there. Much like you do here. 
And like I say, I, I don't understand the definitional aspect of this. Oh, they've got to be exactly like how a dictator is. They're dictators. When you've got a guy telling you that you should be drinking bleach and injecting disinfectant into yourself to get rid of this virus. And that clearly is not scientific fact. It's absolutely dangerous and deadly. and has no basis in any fact at all. It is deadly. It will kill. And you've got healthcare professionals who are afraid to speak out in his administration against him when clearly anybody with any sense at all knows that this would kill them, drinking bleach, to get rid of a coronavirus. Everybody who buys bleach knows that any ingesting of it, it's on the label, can cause death, can cause irreparable harm and death. And you've got health officials in his administration who won't speak out against it. That is a dictatorship. It doesn't have to have every single aspect of what a dictatorship is to meet that test. It's pretty obvious. So that's what you've got in Brazil. That's what you have in Brazil. Meanwhile, part two of the nightmare, and I have touched on this before, people in their 30s and 40s with COVID-19 are dying of strokes. This is from the Washington Post. And there have been other publications who've talked about this, but the Washington Post came out with this article. Whoa, this is a scary read. You want to talk about a nightmare? I'll read just a couple of parts of this because I, I don't want to distress people. It's already distressing enough. You just look at these numbers and we need faces behind these numbers, by the way. Here in the U.S., they do not tell enough stories of the people who are no longer with us. Because if they did, I think people would be more in touch with it. And I know who wants to be reminded every day of this. But I'm sorry, this is the world we're living in now. And we may as well start to begin to be a bit more empathetic and connected. Not just to people who we try to reach out to daily, but also to those who have suffered a loss. Maybe you have. Maybe you've lost somebody in your family. And of course, my condolences, deep condolences to, to you. I'm saying that we need to have a connection to people that we don't know. So those of us who haven't lost somebody who are fortunate not to have this virus, or at least to the best of their knowledge, because there's no testing for us. Or for those of you who, you know, aren't in a position where you are dealing with any loss like this, we should, we must, we need to have connections to those people out there in the world, not just here in the U.S., but anywhere on the planet who have lost someone to this virus or any health outcome. And these things are important. We need the names and faces. We need that. We need to know about these individuals because we start to see numbers and people just tune out. They're desensitized. This Washington Post story, I'm only going to read a couple of paragraphs of it because it will, well, whoa, here goes. Washington Post, young and middle-aged people barely sick with COVID-19 are dying from strokes. Arania Unjung Cha, April the 24th, this was yesterday. Thomas Oxley wasn't even on call the day 
he received a page to come to Mount Sinai Beth Israel Hospital in Manhattan. There weren't enough doctors to treat all the emergency stroke patients, and he was needed in the operating room. The patient's chart appeared unremarkable at first glance. He took no medications and had no history of chronic conditions. He had been feeling fine, hanging out at home during the lockdown, like the rest of the country, when suddenly he had trouble talking and moving the right side of his body. Imaging showed a large blockage on the left side of his head. Oxley gasped when he got to the patient's age and COVID-19 status, 44 positive. The man was among several recent stroke patients in their 30s to 40s who were all infected with the coronavirus. The median age for that type of severe stroke is 74. As Oxley, an interventional neurologist, began the procedure to remove the clot, he observed something he had never seen before. On the monitors, the brain typically shows up as a tangle of black squiggles, quote, like a can of spaghetti, end quote, he said. That provide a map of blood vessels. A clot shows up as a blank spot. As he used a needle-like device to pull out the clot, he saw new clots forming in real time around it. Quote, this is crazy, he remembers telling his boss. Reports of strokes in the young and the middle aged, not just at Mount Sinai, but also in many other hospitals and communities hit hard by the novel coronavirus, are the latest twist in our evolving understanding of its connected disease, COVID-19. Even as the virus has infected nearly 2.8 million people worldwide and killed about 195,000 worldwide as of Friday, its biological mechanisms continue to elude top scientific minds. Once thought to be a pathogen that primarily attacks the lungs, it has turned out to be a much more formidable foe, impacting nearly every major organ system in the body. You have to read that article. You have to read that article from Ariana Unjung Cha. Young, healthy people, barely sick with COVID-19 are dying from strokes. Scary stuff. Remember, the message is shifting because we don't know. We're still trying to find out about this virus. Scientists all over the world are still trying. There are vaccines being tested or tests for vaccines in Oxford, in England. There are trials being done or tests being done, antibody, antibody tests being done in the US and in the UK and other places. 
as people race to get a vaccine and to find one, obviously, that works for everyone. The Oxford trials, the Oxford study, the Oxford scientists and doctors hope to have one as soon as September, which is just over four months away. We'll see if that happens or not. We all want a vaccine to deal with this and then to keep studying this virus because it is doing all these different really frightening things to the human body. And that article was just the tip of the iceberg and I just read a portion of it. And there's a lot more in there that will absolutely disturb you. So I say this all to say, please be careful out here. I see too many people here in San Francisco still without masks on, still without gloves. Very rarely are people wearing both masks and gloves. And the weather is warming up in San Francisco, which means that people are going to be more apt to go outside. And more people will be. Now, for the most part, San Franciscans have been very, very good. I don't know about where you are in the world, but they've been tending to be very good. But there are every now and again, clusters of people not wearing either gloves or masks. And there is an ordinance now here in San Francisco that requires people when they're going out, if uh, certainly if they know that they're going to be going out into crowds to wear a mask, they're supposed to go out and wear a mask at any time, quite frankly. And that is from the Department of Public Health here in San Francisco. So I hope people do pay attention to that here and anywhere. Because this virus is doing things to people that is confounding the scientists and the other medical experts. It's absolutely frightening. And I read that actually to really scare those of you who think that this isn't a big deal into action. Because at first we were told, oh, only older people can get it. Then we found out, oh, that's not true because you've got five-month-olds and five-year-olds and two-month-olds and three-year-olds dying from it, 17-year-olds dying from it, 21-year-olds dying from it, and then perfectly healthy people at that dying from it. Like this 21-year-old woman in London who had no pre-existing conditions and died from it, like the story that I'm talking about in the Washington Post. Healthy people with no pre-existing conditions, getting strokes, dying. Young people in their 30s and 40s. It's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. And the notion that Republican governors like Brian Kemp in Georgia, who stole the election from the Democratic challenger, Stacey Abrams, the notion that he'd open anything for business and have people in poor, predominantly poor communities be out, go out and practice in the gym, go out and get a tattoo, go and get a haircut. The notion that he would do that with this virus and the numbers of people getting it in his own state skyrocketing and people dying skyrocketing is nothing less than criminally negligent homicide. And then on Thursday, to top it all off, you had Republicans not wearing masks at all on the House floor. Can you imagine? You're having a debate about a bill that's supposed to bring relief economically to people in this country from this virus, to deal with this virus. And you've got Republican House politicians standing up there not wearing masks. Very few of them were. The arrogance of that is stupefying and enraging.
And then you've got Democratic House members who are wearing masks, but then taking them off when they speak, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Only a few people spoke at the lectern with their masks on. House member Lauren Underwood must be singled out for this. And thank you for caring about the public safety, not just in your district, but also in the house that you debate in. And thank you for putting on a pair of gloves and and a mask also to Representative Escobar out of Texas, El Paso, who spoke with a mask on and with a pair of gloves on. And there was wipes, there were Lysol, speaking of which, and chlor, whatever, there were wipes, alcohol wipes. And you saw members of the Democratic side wiping down the lectern, wiping down the microphone. But then you saw these same members, some of them, put their open hand, their palm, back onto the microphone after they had cleaned it off. And I thought that that was lunacy, pure lunacy. Why are you going to clean a microphone and a microphone stand and a microphone and a lectern and all of those things? And then you're going to put your bare hand on the microphone after you've cleaned it off? Why aren't you wearing gloves? It makes sense. I mean, I can countenance if you touch it with gloves on. And even that is an issue because if you put those gloves in a certain place, Yeah, you could be putting more virus or more bacteria back onto the microphone stand. But at least have gloves on when you're doing this, when you're cleaning, when you're. So if you are touching, you've got protective gloves on, perhaps there will be, you know, there won't be a transmission there. And if you've got a new pair of gloves on, you're not going to put anything on that microphone stand. But it was amazing. Even Speaker Pelosi, she had a mask, but she pulled it off when she was speaking. But contrast that and the fact that there were wipes on the Democratic side, but the fact that on the Republican side, I didn't see any wipes. I didn't see anybody wiping in the lectern. There were no wipes there that I could see. There was nobody on the Republican side wiping down the lectern, wiping down the microphones. I mean, even in these gatherings that you see in these press conferences, and I'm assuming that the reason why you're not seeing any of this kind of people wearing gloves or masks or anything when these governors are giving their press conferences and these mayors is because they've all been tested. And the people around them who are standing closer than the social, the physical distancing guidelines of six feet here in the US, they're standing closer because I'm assuming they've all been tested and been tested several different times. Do you know that Trump has a test every week for coronavirus? Every single week. And I'm sure that That's not just only him who does. All those other people you see standing at his campaign rallies also get tested. But it sends mixed messages to the rest of us out here in the public watching you. If you're not practicing the physical distancing that you tell everybody else to do, if you're not speaking with a mask and gloves on, when the San Francisco Department of Health says you all should be out here wearing masks, if you go outside Wear a mask. People do take their cues from leadership. People do take their cues from leadership positions. And if they're seeing someone like Donald Trump tell them, 
drink bleach. Believe me, it's common sense or well, it's sense, shall we say, to you and me. But there are actually people out there who may try this. And there were a couple in Phoenix who did try this, not with bleach, but with hydroxychloroquine. And they actually ingested the chemical that they knew existed in a fish tank cleaner that they had. And they took the powder, a teaspoon of it, a teaspoon of it each, and ingested it. One of them died, the husband, and the widow is still in the ICU, apparently. This is in Phoenix, Arizona. And they watched Trump tell them this at these one of his rallies. And that's why they did it. So people are impressionable, even if they may also be stupid. And you had 100 plus calls to the state of Maryland's coronavirus hotline yesterday asking, well, is it true that corona, that, that, is it true that, li- that we shouldn't be taking Lysol? Is, does Lysol help? Does ingesting Lysol help with coronavirus cure? Does uh, drinking bleach help? People actually were calling in over a hundred calls to the state of Maryland's coronavirus hotline asking those questions. Most of us won't do anything like that because we know the difference between what is deadly and what is not. But there are some who actually entertain the idea and Trump knows that, which is why this is extremely dangerous. It can result in your life being taken. Now, unless you have a death wish or belong to a death cult, which is the Jim Jones death cult that Donald Trump is reviving, then you really know better than this. Mixed messages can result in the end of your life. So be careful out here to quote the words of someone from Hill Street Blues, Daniel J. Travanti, who used to say that all the time. You of a certain age know Hill Street Blues. Those of you who don't, check out YouTube. Thank you for listening. I'm Omar Moore. The Politocrat. On this Saturday. Be well.